Okay, well, this morning we're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you, please open up to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We live in a day and age uh, in which expertise is a very valuable commodity. Whether it's in science or politics or technology or finance or even relationships, people are always looking for experts to give them advice on what to do. Uh, They buy their books, they attend their seminars, they watch their TV programs, all in an effort to seek to learn, to grow, to be as much like the experts and to achieve the same success uh, as they have. Uh, And of course, that's uh, true in the church as well. There's no end of experts in church strategy, church growth. There are countless books and programs and courses and seminars that one can take, some of them helpful, others Not so much. But if anyone qualifies as an expert in church ministry, it would be the Apostle Paul. In fact, I think if Paul were alive today, he could quite possibly be a billionaire in church strategy. Although, having said that, I don't think he would be uh, because he wouldn't go in that direction. But of course, Paul's ministry was the ministry that really um, began the spread of the Christian faith uh, throughout the world. You know, before Paul started preaching, Christianity was kind of just a, a sect of Judaism in and around the area of Israel. But God called the Apostle Paul to take the gospel uh, further afield. Uh, And he did just that, taking the gospel all across uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, And so as we look at the pages of Scripture, both in the book of Acts and uh, in Paul's letters, we have both Paul's example and his teaching uh, when it comes to church ministry. Uh, And there are many passages in the New Testament in which Paul talks about church ministry. Uh, One of the foundational passages is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, And I'll just read to you verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 4. And he himself, that is the risen ascended Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, Now the word ministry there is simply a word that means service. It means to serve, to serve in the church. And what Paul is basically saying uh, there in that passage is that the leaders of the church are to serve the church by equipping the people in the church to serve each other. And when that takes place, then the church is built up. Then we all grow in our faith. Then the church becomes strong and an effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And the 
important point to take away from there that's relevant for us this morning is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to ministry. Sometimes we think of ministry as what the pastor does. And it's true. The pastor has an important ministry. The ministry is something that the Christian does. It is something for all of us. We are all called to serve, to minister to one another in the church of Jesus Christ. We all have a part to play. We all have a role to fulfill. We all have a vital contribution to make to the life, the ministry, the health, the growth of the church. And here in our passage today in Acts chapter 20, uh, we are given some important insights into the Apostle Paul's view of the ministry. Through him giving an account of his own ministry to a group of church leaders. Uh, And we see in our passage uh, this morning that Paul refers to um, three things. Firstly, the example that he gave with his life. Secondly, the message that he taught. And then thirdly, the heart that he had. And while uh, Paul is speaking to church leaders primarily in our passage, uh, there are lessons here, I think, for all of us as believers, for we are all called uh, to ministry, to service Uh, within the church. Uh, And so I've entitled our message this morning simply Lessons in Church Ministry. Our passage is Acts chapter 20. We'll begin in verse uh, 17 and we'll go down to verse 24. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see... Now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We uh, thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. We thank you that it is living and it is powerful and it has the ability to change and transform our hearts and lives. And so, Father, we ask this morning that by your spirit that you would open our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand what your word would have to say to us. Teach us, we pray, encourage us, uh, strengthen us, uh, build us up 
uh, Lord, in the lives that you've called us to live so that we may truly live, Lord, in accordance with your will and purpose and for your glory, both inside and outside of the church. So, Lord, bless this time, we pray. Bless your word to our hearts as we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been following the Apostle Paul on what is now his third missionary journey. Uh, He'd been a few years now on this third missionary journey. uh, And we have a map, uh, so we can just recap. He started off at Antioch, his home church, uh, right over there, um, 300 miles north of Jerusalem in what is uh, modern-day Syria. It was ancient Syria as well. Uh, and from there, the Apostle Paul visited the churches of uh, Asia Minor, southern Galatia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, not to be confused with Antioch of Syria. Uh, those were the churches he'd already planted on his first missionary journey, and he visited those churches to encourage uh, and to strengthen them. And then he moved on to the city of Ephesus, where he spent uh, about three years in total preaching the gospel. Uh, and teaching the word of God uh, to the disciples. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, God did a great and a mighty work uh, in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Then the Lord moved Paul on, uh, and he headed over uh, the water to Macedonia, where he visited the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, and Berea, churches he'd established on his second missionary journey. Uh, And then he headed south, to the area of Greece or the Roman province of Achaia, uh, where he visited uh, the church in Corinth. And his intention was to sail from Corinth all the way back uh, to uh, Syria so he could attend Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, But while he was in Corinth, he got wind of a plot uh, against his life. Uh, And so at the last minute, he changed his plans. And rather than get on the boat Uh, with a bunch of people that actually wanted to see him dead. Not a good idea. Boat, water, um, you get the picture. So he changed his plans, and he went all the way back up to Macedonia, which is our next map, Q. There we go. So now he's going backwards. So from Corinth, he heads all the way north to Philippi. And in Philippi, he met his old friend, Dr. Luke. Uh, And Dr. Luke then joined him uh, on his journey over to Troas, Uh, And he spent some time in Troas, just a week, uh, and there uh, he ministered to the believers there. You'll remember in Troas, Paul preached until midnight, and uh, the poor young boy uh, fell out the window and died. And then uh, Paul sort of brought him back to life in the power of the Lord and carried on his message until daybreak. Uh, And then he left, uh, and he sailed down then past Ephesus uh, and has come to the city of Miletus, which is just about 30 miles south of the city of Ephesus. And this is where Paul is uh, now as we pick up our text in chapter 20. Uh, As you'll see later on, uh, he'll sail over the water and eventually he will come to Jerusalem, which is his ultimate uh, aim. So as we pick up in verse 17 of chapter 20, we see that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. 
And so the first thing that happens when Paul arrives uh, in Miletus is he calls for the elders of the church uh, in Ephesus. He sailed past Ephesus uh, because he'd already spent a good deal of time there and he'd also said, he's already said farewell to all the believers. Uh, and so he didn't want to um, sort of, sounds bad to say, waste time there. Uh, but he had uh, other things to do. Uh, and so he decided to, to skip past the church. But the Lord had clearly placed something on his heart, uh, a message, an exhortation to give to the leaders, to the elders uh, of the church in Ephesus. Uh, and so he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to Miletus to meet with him so that he could give them one last exhortation. Now, just a quick word on the term elder. Now, the word elder there is referring to really the spiritual leaders of the church there in Ephesus. Now, there are several terms in the New Testament uh, used to refer to the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church. Uh, Elder is one of those terms. It's actually a carryover from uh, Judaism. The elders of the synagogue uh, would be those uh, who were mature men uh, who exercised oversight over the affairs of the synagogue. And the term was carried into the church and is review, uh, and it sort of emphasizes that the, the maturity uh, of the individual. But there's also two other words that are used in the New Testament uh, to refer to these spiritual leaders. There is the word uh, bishop, or the word, it's the Greek word episkopos, where we get episcopal or episcopalian from. It's a word that means overseer. Uh, and so you have an elder, you have a, a bishop, and there's a third word, and that's the word pastor, uh, which is the word for shepherd. Uh, And what we tend to find throughout the New Testament is those three words uh, tend to be used interchangeably to refer to those uh, that are the spiritual leaders over uh, the church. Uh, And they refer to sort of different aspects of that church leadership. The elder, term elder refers to to the maturity, if you like. Uh, The word bishop refers to the oversight uh, responsibility. The term pastor It is the term uh, shepherding, which refers to the functioning uh, of the shepherd. These three terms are actually all used in in 1 Peter chapter 5 by Peter, uh, who in the first couple of verses says, The elders who are among you I exhort, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Uh, All three terms are used there. Uh, The elders are to shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers over the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so the elders are to pastor the church. The function of a pastor was mainly twofold, to protect the sheep and to feed the sheep. Uh, The oversight uh, speaks of the responsibility for the spiritual life and ministry uh, of the church. And so the elder is the one who is to pastor and oversee uh, the church. Uh, And so All three of those terms really refer to the same function within the church, the function of church leadership, spiritual leadership within uh, the church. Uh, And so these elders, they were the leaders uh, of the church uh, in Ephesus, and Paul called them uh, to come to him in Miletus. And so verse 18 tells us, when they had come to him, he said to them. Now just a note there, when they had come to him. Uh, Miletus was a 30-mile walk from Ephesus. Uh, That was a a full day's walk, a long day's walk, 30 miles. Now, just think for a second. Think about walking for 30 miles. 
Now, these elders were pretty dedicated to the ministry that God had called them to. Remember, the Apostle Paul had spent uh, nearly three years in the city of Ephesus, ministering to the church uh, in Ephesus. And no doubt many of those who were now elders in the church uh, would have been saved under the Paul's ministry and would have been discipled by Paul as he taught in the school of Tyrannus. And so they all had great love and respect uh, for the Apostle Paul and for the ministry that God had called him to. Uh, and they no doubt knew that if Paul was calling them to come uh, to, to see him, that, then he must have had something very important to say to them. He must have had some very important word from the Lord uh, to give to them. Uh, and so without hesitation, they walked the 30 miles south to the city of Miletus uh, to meet with Paul. And so what does Paul say to them? Well, this is quite a long um, sermon, we could call it, of the Apostle Paul. And we're only going to cover the first part of it uh, this morning. Uh, but notice firstly what he says. He says, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, and that is the area of Asia Minor, um, not sort of, you know, India or China, um, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting uh, of the Jews. And so the first thing he says is, you know what manner I always lived among you. And this is the first point that we see, uh, the first lesson in church ministry. And that is from the example that Paul gave, the example of his life before the people the first thing he does here is he calls attention to his own life his own faithful and humble service amongst them during the three-year period of time that he was with them in the city of Ephesus and he says you know you were there you saw me you saw how I lived among you you saw my faithfulness to the calling that God had given me. You saw the humility uh, that I operated with. Now, the reason uh, that he begins with this is probably twofold. Uh, firstly, there may well have been false teachers coming into the Ephesian church saying, oh, you know that Apostle Paul? He was just in it for the money. He was just in it for the prestige, he, you know, and so on and so forth, slandering his character and his motivations. And he may at this point be saying, look, you may have heard all these rumors about me, but you know what I was like when I was with you. I'm reminding you, don't forget, don't listen to those guys. So that may be one reason why Paul would begin like this. But I think a second reason uh, is that he's here establishing himself, his own life, as an example for the Ephesian elders to follow. Not an example instead of Jesus, of course, who is our ultimate example, but as an example of one who is faithful to follow and serve Jesus. Uh, and this is a, an important point, especially in the context of church leadership, uh, but also really for all of us as believers, uh, and that is at the heart of church ministry really is example. Example. Uh, in John chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus reminded his disciples after washing their feet, saying, 
I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus offered himself in selfless service to the disciples. And he says, this I did and I'm setting an example for you so that you too will follow my example and offer yourselves in selfless service to others. And the Apostle Paul understood this when he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul was saying, I am living my life following Jesus. I am doing the best I can to live a life that is like Jesus. So in as much as I do that, you follow my example. Follow my example as I also follow Christ's example so that we can all follow the example of Christ together. Uh, Now Paul is not saying this, just to say out of any kind of pride or arrogance. He's not just saying, I've got it all down. You know, I am the perfect example of what it is to be a Christian, so all just keep your eyes on me. He's pointing people's eyes to Jesus and holding himself up as an example of the person whose eyes are on Jesus. My eyes are on Jesus, so follow my example, and you put your eyes on Jesus too. It's not as if Paul was kind of walking around the city of Ephesus, you know, in his uh, expensive suit, driving his expensive car, you know, demanding uh, all kinds of things from the people, uh, and so on and so forth. Paul wasn't into making demands or seeking the limelight. He wasn't motivated by money. He didn't care about any of those things. He cared about following the example of Jesus and being obedient to the call of Jesus and doing so with the humility of Jesus. And so this all really speaks of the importance of living a life of integrity. Living a life of integrity before the church and before the world. It's about practicing what we preach, so to speak. It's about living out what we believe and profess. You know, later on, Paul would uh, tell Timothy, young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. The teaching of the word of God is important. It's essential, and Paul will actually come on to that. But first, he says, take heed to yourself, Timothy. Take heed to yourself. Take care of your own spiritual life before the Lord. Ensure that your own heart is right before the Lord. Your own life is right before the congregation. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, to the teaching of the word of God. In the context of church leaders earlier in 1 Timothy, Paul would outline the qualifications for eldership in the church. Uh, And the very first one, apart from a desire to uh, serve, a desire from the Lord, is that an elder be blameless. That is a man of integrity. And it goes on to talk about the elder's home life. A one-woman man. One who rules his own household well. Timothy, take care of your own life. And then serve in the church of God in the capacity of leadership. And so, 
This is not just, though, a call to church leaders to practice what we preach. It's also a reminder to all believers, particularly of the words that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5, in which he said to the disciples, you are the light of the world. Did you know that if Jesus Christ dwells in you, Jesus Christ is the light of the world, so therefore the light of the world dwells in you. So therefore you are the light of the world because the light of Christ dwells in you. And so what are we to do with the light? Well, we're not to hide it, Jesus said. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is emphasizing the importance of the life that we live before the world. And much harm has been done in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and much harm has been done to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ by those who profess one thing but do another. They're called hypocrites. And we are not to be hypocrites in the church. Now, that is not to say we all have to be perfect. None of us is perfect. But what it means is don't pretend that you are more than you are. It's okay. Paul later said in the letters of Philippians, not that I've already attained. You know, I'm not perfect. I haven't made it. You know, but I'm pressing on. I'm learning. I'm growing. You know, it doesn't really matter how far along the line you are in the Christian life. What matters is the direction you're moving. Are you growing? Little by little, step by step. That's the important thing. And we have this important exhortation to let our light so shine before men that they may see the life that we live and that the life that we live may be a testimony to the gospel that we preach you see christianity is not just about what we believe it's not just up there it's in here it's not just about the mind it's about the heart see the gospel of jesus christ the word of God is living and powerful, the Bible says. To impact, to change, to transform our life bit by bit, little by little, from the inside out. Uh, secondly, notice that the message that he taught, uh, beginning in verse 20, because he said, he says, You know how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you know how when I was with you, I kept back nothing from you that was helpful, but I proclaimed to you everything that you needed to know. You see, Paul could say that boldly. And honestly and confidently that he held back nothing from the believers in terms of what he told them, in terms of what he taught them. He didn't just teach them the things that he was comfortable with. He didn't just teach the topics that he liked and avoid the topics that he didn't like. He didn't withhold anything that they needed to hear, anything that was helpful to them. He proclaimed it all to them. And that is also an important uh, example for us. And an example for ministry within the church, the teaching ministry within 
the church. And that's one reason why we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because when we do that, we we just have to teach things. We, we, We can't avoid the difficult topics. We can't avoid the controversial things. You know, it's not just up to me to pick my favorite subject each week and so on. And sometimes it would be easier to do that. And there are many who do do just that. But as we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, you see, we're not withholding anything that you need to hear. You see, we need all of the word of God to encourage us, to strengthen us, to build us up. And the word of God speaks to every area of our lives, even the difficult things, the things that we don't want to talk about. Yet it's so often the difficult things and the things that we don't want to talk about are the things that we need to talk about the most. And so Paul, he didn't withhold anything. He didn't hold anything back. He taught them everything uh, that they needed uh, to know. Uh, And notice in uh, verse 20, a little detail, it says he taught them publicly and from house to house. That's interesting. That gives us a little interesting to the a little insight into the organization of the church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, And I think it's important to understand in context because uh, the church in Ephesus was probably organized quite differently to the way we may think in our sort of modern 21st century uh, understanding because we would tend to think that there was, you know, maybe one big church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and maybe there was this big hall and they all met, you know, once a week like uh, we do. Uh, But that's not really how it was uh, at all. Um, In Ephesus, there were many believers, hundreds, possibly thousands in the city uh, from uh, Paul's ministry there. Um, But what we see is that Paul went in order to teach these believers from house to house. In other words, these believers were organized in houses, houses all around the city. Uh, And so there there wasn't sort of one big church that they all went to, so to speak, but there were many different house churches around the city. Now, that's not by design uh, as such. It was just by necessity that there were no church buildings uh, and there were no sort of places. So so they, they met in houses and they did that from the earliest time. And it wasn't until sort of Christianity became more acceptable in the Roman Empire that they were given permission to build church buildings for public meetings. And then when they were able to do that, they later did do that. And obviously we see um, sort of the results of that today. Now, it's not that having a, a church building is wrong or having a church in a house is, is more right uh, than the other. Um, that's sort of not the point here. It's just the way it was. Uh, But it does give us uh, some interesting insight because um, there is an advantage to meeting in smaller groups. And that is when we meet on a smaller scale, there is more opportunity to develop relationships one with another. Uh, And one of the biggest challenges in the church today is, is the challenge of meaningful Christian fellowship. You know, we're all so busy. We've got 101 things going on. We've got work. We've got family. We've got so on. You know, and, and we're just lucky if we get to church on a Sunday morning, let alone do anything else. And that's the culture in which we live. And yet we read through the pages of the New Testament 
uh, and we're encouraged toward meaningful Christian fellowship. We're encouraged toward developing godly relationships with one another. Relationships which will enable us to effectively minister toward to one another. And that is hard to do because of all the other stuff that we have going on in life. Yet it is so important and so necessary because we all need each other. And sometimes even though we're part of a church, it can feel like we're just on our own. And that's not how it ought to be. And so it's an encouragement to us all to do what we can to play our part, to develop relationships with one another so that we can help one another, that we can pray for one another meaningfully and knowledgeably so that we can support, so that we can help do whatever it is that is needed to build up and to, and to edify. And that's why, that's primarily why we do home groups in the week. It's very difficult, you know, just on, on a Sunday morning, sort of like half an hour after church, you kind of say, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine, thanks, okay. And it's very difficult if we only see someone for five minutes on a Sunday morning to develop any kind of meaningful relationship. It has to go beyond that. You know, and another stepping stone then uh, is, is our home groups. But it has to go beyond that as well. The home groups are so important, a great opportunity to, to develop relationships with people. Uh, and so, finally, this is where we wrap up here because we're just about out of time. Uh, we notice that the heart, the heart Paul had, the heart behind the example, the heart behind the message. We see it in verse 22. He says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so the final uh, point here in our passage concerns the heart that Paul had. You notice in verse 22, he says, right now, Ephesian elders, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has told me I need to go to Jerusalem. So I'm going. And I don't know what's going to happen to me at Jerusalem, but all I know is every city I go to, the Lord is showing me that when I go to Jerusalem, something bad's going to happen. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's going to happen. I, I just know, but I still know I've got to go. Now, Paul knew all about bad things. We followed him all the way through his missionary journeys. I mean, you know, Paul, uh, Paul was mocked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was arrested. He was thrown in prison. Uh, he was whipped, um, stoned to death, and came back to life. I mean, Paul, Paul knew all about what it was to suffer. For the sake of Jesus. Uh, and now Paul was heading back to Jerusalem and he knew that something bad was going to happen. Something bad was going to happen when he got there. But, uh, and we'll see something bad does happen to him when he gets there. And we'll see that when we get to it later on in the text. But notice his response in verse 24. None of these things move me. None of these things move me. Now, that's quite amazing in so many ways. 
Because Paul lived with a constant sense of uncertainty in his life. He didn't know what was going to happen. Everywhere he went, trouble could have was just around the corner. He didn't know what, he didn't know how, he didn't know when. Yet even with that daily uncertainty, none of those things moved him. In the spite of constant threats, none of those things moved him. And that tells us that the Lord had done a great work of his grace in Paul's heart. That he could declare that in all truth. Uh, And it's a work I think that some of us this morning need in our hearts as well. You know, for some of us, uncertainty drives us crazy. I mean, I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what is going to happen and I want to know when it's going to happen. I don't like living in uncertainty. I want to know. You know, and so we tend to to plan and and we organize and we schedule and and all those things and and nothing wrong with those things. That's good to be uh, organized and so on and so forth. But the point is, is we need, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to learn to trust the Lord. We need to learn to trust the Lord. Paul didn't know what awaited him, but he knew it was bad. Oftentimes we don't know what awaits us and we don't know whether it's going to be good or bad. Yet we still struggle with that and it still drives us crazy. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul said, in the Christian life we walk by faith and not by sight. And the life of faith is a life of uncertainty. At least uncertainty in our circumstances. You know, we don't know what's going to happen because God doesn't tell us oftentimes what's going to happen. And why doesn't he tell us? Well, it's usually because he wants us to trust him. I don't want you to know. You don't need to know. Just trust me, the Lord says. But the life of faith at the same time is also a life of certainty because it's a life of certainty in the God who is sovereign over all things. Someone once said, and you'll have heard this many times before, I'm sure, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do know the God who holds tomorrow. And that's a great expression of biblical truth. And as we close here, trust in the Lord is absolutely vital for at least two reasons in the Christian life. Firstly, it's the key to peace in your heart today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 and 34 Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And isn't that true? Haven't I got enough going on today without worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow? You see, worry is a killer. really is. And we all do it. We're all prone to it. It's natural. It's part of human nature. We all worry. But Jesus there is commanding us not to worry. Do not worry. So next time you're worrying, remember those words of Jesus. Do not worry. You think, well, how can I not worry? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And trust God to take care of tomorrow. You commit yourself to trusting him and being obedient to him and his will today. 
Trust him to take care of tomorrow because he promises he will. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Don't worry about tomorrow. This is a word from the Lord for someone, maybe more than one person here this morning. Do not worry about tomorrow. Trust the Lord. He knows. He's in control, even in the difficult things and even in the bad things that lay ahead. He calls me to purpose in my heart to trust him. Trust him today. Be obedient to him today. And in that trust and obedience, there is that peace that passes all understanding which he promises will guide our hearts and minds. And so the first reason why trust in the Lord is so important is the key to peace in your heart today. But secondly, it's the key to direction for the future. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. You know, there's a great irony in desperately wanting to know the future. And it's so often the case that as long as we want to know the future, we won't find out the future. It's only when we actually give up wanting to know that the Lord will move us forward. And oftentimes we have to come to that place where we give it up. We let it go. Lord, it's okay. It doesn't matter. You're in control. I belong to you. This is your life. You can do with it whatever you want. And so I'm going to let it go. And it's when we come to that place of trust, not leaning on our own understanding, boy, don't we want to do that all the time, but again, acknowledging him in all our ways, trusting him, being obedient to his will today, and leaving it in the Lord's hands. And we have the promise there that then he will direct our steps. You know, the key so often to knowing God's will for the future is to be content with not knowing God's will for the future. Leave it in the Lord's hands. He will reveal it to you in his perfect time. And so this is the life of faith. It's so simple, yet it's so hard at the same time. But like Paul, we need that work of God's spirit in our hearts to strengthen us and enable us so that we too can say in great uncertainty, and even in times of great trial, none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy. Paul had a race, you have a race too. That is our goal, to finish our race, to finish it with joy. And if we are going to do that, we have to walk by faith, not by sight, fully and completely trusting him every single step of the way. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's a wonderful phrase, the gospel of the grace of God. Salvation is by grace. It's by what God has done. We also live the Christian life by grace. It's what God does in and through us, through the work of his Holy Spirit. So let us commit our lives afresh to trusting him. And ask him for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to enable us to take that step forward in faith and in obedience.
trusting that the Lord will take us where he wants us to go. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We ask you to bless your word to our hearts. Lord, encourage and strengthen us, we pray. Enable us uh, to live those lives that you've called us to live. Lord, help us to trust you. Sometimes it can be so hard and so difficult. We all know that it is. We all experience that to one degree or another from time to time. Lord, help us to truly trust in you fully with our whole lives, our heart, mind, soul, strength. And Lord, I pray that you would guide us. Guide us, Lord, to the places that you want us to go. Give us the opportunities, Lord, to minister to one another and to those outside. And Lord, give us the peace, the peace which passes understanding to guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We thank you for the promises of your word. Help us to move forward in obedience to your word, depending on the promises of your word whatever the circumstances, whatever the consequences, so that we may live those lives that are pleasing to you. Father, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.